0: Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, boss man. It's not quite our Christmas Eve episode. Not quite. It was only just a few days ago that we were hanging out with quite a few listeners of this show at our first annual DC holiday party. It was a blast to see members connect, spend the days afterwards and the weekend doing cool things with each other and hanging out here in Austin, which was strangely hot. I couldn't even wear my Christmas sweater to the holiday party.
1: I know, that was the biggest disappointment, which is, uh, (laughs) it was like 75 degrees, laid out the holiday sweater, and it was like, I can't do this. It's too hot. (laughs) Regardless, we had a great time at our holiday party here in Austin. A bunch of cool people uh, showed up. Some people actually flew in. It was very cool to see everybody. Yeah, And just talk plans, you know, talk how the year went, See what everybody's up to. There were several people I hadn't seen for a couple of years that came
0: to this party. So uh, I really enjoyed it, Dan. I had a great time. Hope we do it again next year. Jane made fun of us. I don't know if you know this, but producer Jane said, I knew y'all were in Texas. She didn't say y'all because you're wearing plaid and cowboy boots. <laughs> and I'll say this. I have no yeah. fashion identity. I just take on wherever I'm at. That's, so if I'm in Thailand, I am wearing like a singa tank top. And if I'm in Texas, I'm wearing cowboy boots and plaid.
1: For sure. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was not only here in Austin that there was a holiday party. In fact, DC members hosted holiday parties all around the world. So that was really cool to see in the forum as well. We're going to do our annual retrospective episode, Ian, with a bloopers reel at the end. We're going to revisit some of our favorite conversations of the year. At the top, I just thought, make some general reflections. You know, here in just a few days, we're going to be shutting our laptops.
1: Speak for yourself, by the way. (laughs) You're not going to shut your laptop? (laughs) No. I just had a product planning call with our CTO. It's like, I can't wait for the holidays because we'll actually get some work done. (laughs)
0: Okay. You're actually right in line with what I wanted to say. So, ostensibly, we're shutting our laptops, but actually, what we're doing over the next few days is getting out of the day to day. And I have like these one pager documents in front of me, like, you know, we need a recruiting staffing plan. We need a. New marketing plan and budget. And like these are the sorts of things that me and you are going to be thinking about over this holiday season, reflections, sort of digging into our dreams and these big ideas of what we want to get accomplished in 2022. And this sort of the message I want to leave here with the listener is that the classic business adage of we often overestimate what we can get done in a week, but we underestimate how much we can do in a year. And in our case, Ian, we took just one project with dynamitejobs.com and that in 2019, it had $5,000 of revenue. I mean, it was really just a project, just something fun. And this year, we had well over half a million dollars in revenue. And I think that that's a testament to getting back to the basics, which is our theme of this year, developing customers, developing product, trying to market and sell it. That's the basics all you need to grow a successful business is right here in the conversations we had this year there's a sort of a magic to the result in terms of freedom and flexibility and owning your own life in a way that's very unique but in terms of how to get it done it's back to the basics it's build a skill set go out to the market and sell it
1: that's what we did this year and looking forward to more of that next year dan i think it's a, it's a compounding effect too i was just looking at we're starting to pour a bunch of our data into Google Studio that I'm not that familiar with, but it seems like it's going to be powerful. Anyways, man, just like looking at these graphs being like, oh boy, that looks exciting. That thing's trending up. If you look at these graphs on a daily basis, the it doesn't change. This is the same idea of like what you can accomplish in a week versus a year. It's like now with that we're looking at the year's worth of data, in there, it's starting to start to have some shape to it and it's starting to have a trend to it. And I think you have to trust these trends. You have to trust these shapes and work as if it's going to work out. One of the things that we had to do at the beginning of this year was essentially, I'll speak for myself, I had to trick myself into understanding that this was going to work out if I sat at my desk every day for hours at a time,
0: which I hadn't been doing in previous years necessarily. You got to have faith. There's a faith that you're not going to waste that time.
1: Yep. Yep there's a faith that you're not going to waste that time. But in reality, I mean, I wasted tons of time this year trying experiments, (laughs) things that didn't work. But like, you have to go through the motions to figure out how to make it work. And
0: eventually, your graph starts to look good. Them's the basics. So if you're anything like us, you got your earbuds in. It's Christmas Eve. You're wrapping some presents. You're probably going to open that laptop Christmas afternoon. Maybe do some brainstorming. Maybe set some 2022 plans if you're crazy like the boss man and myself, this episode is for you. We appreciate you following our story this year. And uh, I think we both have plans on improving said story for next year. So we'll hope you join us for that. I mean, one of the things about this podcast, Ian, episode number one, we sat down and we said, we believe the best route to freedom, flexibility, and the chance at a long-term sustainable income that leads to wealth is building a small business that optimizes for multiple currencies. I can't update that for 2022. We still believe that. That's part of the reason we still love doing this show and we're gonna continue it in 2022. So this year, we've talked to some amazing people who've done just that and shared those back-to-basics templates that can help you start or improve your entrepreneurial journey. And becoming a freelance writer is definitely one path and writing is critical and central to the task of entrepreneurship. One of my favorite conversations of the year was with Dave Perell, co-founder of the course Rite of Passage. and He dropped by the pod and threw out some great nuggets about how to make what can be often a very challenging path, creating content for a living, a little bit less daunting.
2: Most people think that writing should be a solo experience. So they're like, Henry Thoreau, going out into the woods in the mid-19th century. I'm going to go to Walden Pond for two years. I'm going to come back with a big book. And I say, screw it. Like, let's make writing social. Let's make it conversational. And through conversation, we'll come up with new ideas. The second is that you can write from abundance instead of writing from scarcity. You know, a lot of people, they show up to their computer, they're ready to write, and they look at their computer and they have a white... Screen with a black flashing cursor and no information or ideas that they've collected to help them. I say do the exact opposite: collect so many notes, so many ideas, and the residue from so many conversations that you just have so much information that you can't even help but writing. And the third is a lot of people write, but they don't publish. And as you know from doing this podcast, what since two thousand and eight or so. When you publish ideas, you create serendipity for yourself, you create opportunities, you get feedback, the quality of your work improves. And so I say, make writing social, write from abundance, and write in public. Do you feel
0: like writing has been devalued on the web in the last 10 years, especially long form?
2: So I think that there's a lot of things that are like this. To the median person, the answer is certainly yes. So I have a theory that people are becoming less literate, and we don't measure literacy properly because we think of literacy as one thing, but there's actually two different kinds of literacy. There's what I call street sign literacy. There's what I call library literacy. So street sign literacy is the ability to look at a street line, look at a sign, fill out a form. That is a certain kind of literacy. Without question, that's gone up. It's an incredible human achievement. Now, there's library literacy, and this is the ability to read dense philosophy. This is the ability to think abstractly, to actually look at the nuance and the logic of an argument and begin to parse together what makes sense and what doesn't. And I have a theory that that's actually going down as a percentage of the population, which, to answer your question, would mean yes. However— However, and this is a very important qualifier, smart people read, and smart people will continue to read because it's the most efficient form of information transfer, and it's the one that will continue to last the longest. So if I make a YouTube video, in 15 years it's just going to look outdated, maybe even 10 years. If I write something, I know that people three, 400 years from now will be able to read that, and because writing is such an Efficient form of information transfer. You attract the smartest and most qualified people by writing online. And there's a direct correlation between the length and the wonkiness of what I write and how popular it is, which is the opposite of what most people think the trend is.
0: And the correlation meaning the more wonky it is, the more popular it becomes.
2: Totally. Yeah. So my most popular (laughs) essay is a 15,000 word piece on how Peter Thiel was influenced by Christianity. And the quality of people who've reached out to me from that piece is is just sort of mind blowing actually. And, you know, I'll write a bunch of short pieces and they just don't get the same the same response. Now, there's there's outliers all over the place, but I can tell you for certain that I am doubling down on long form writing because of what I'm seeing and because of the quality of people who reach out to me through it.
0: Big shout out to Dave Perel. You can find out more about him over at perrell.com Also the guy's an amazing golfer. Just gonna put that out there. Another form of entrepreneurship, one that often comes up on the show, is acquiring businesses using your knowledge, network, and skills to make them profitable. And this is not just for people who have a bunch of ready cash to throw around. Shaquille Proslar has built a portfolio through his company SC Ventures by leveraging different and creative sorts of loans. What was particularly interesting about his approach is how he went about gaining insight into the reasons people are looking to sell those businesses in the first place. Quick health warning about this and other investment stuff we're going to talk about. None of this is advice. So, you know, always apply your own due diligence that might involve, you know, experts beyond your lowly TMBA hosts.
3: My first acquisition, I ended up going to a credit union and I think my interest rate from there was 12 or 15% a year. I just told them, look, I'll personal guarantee it. I'm looking to buy a business. And that's how I was able to get the first $50,000 was uh, through a credit union. Luckily, I was able to make that work is 12% a year. But the business, again, I, I bought it at close to a 2x multiple, was generating enough money to where I would pay back in two years. Now, Dan, if I had failed on a business, I don't know what I would be doing. I don't know if I'd keep buying online businesses because the first one had to work out for me to be where I am at this point. I've used a lot of different financing options to get to where I am. But it's
0: hard to take just $50,000 and turn it into generational wealth. So at what point did you start experimenting with different financing options?
3: It was probably my fourth acquisition. The first one was a credit loan. The second one was cash. And the third one was seller financing, actually. The number one thing I've learned is, you know, let's just say, Dan, you're selling a business and you have two buyers, me that's asking you for seller financing or someone on the flip side that's willing to give you a cash deal. All things just being equal, you most likely will just pick a cash deal that gives you money up front. Why the hell would you give me seller financing and so one thing I've learned is sellers have different motives. things that I do is I try to build a good rapport with the seller, build trust, and I do that by you know telling them that thank you for allowing me to look into your business. To your secrets, to your business plan. I know it's not easy sharing these sensitive details. I will keep this to myself and I want to grow your business. I want to grow the legacy that you have created. And these are the skill sets I bring. You should give me seller financing because I have a track record of growing businesses. You can trust me because I will hold this business as collateral. So if I default, you take the business back. I'll give you weekly updates and you could tell me yes or no. A lot of sellers like to be involved in the business still. It's really hard for someone to just turn it off, sell it and get rid of it. So I tell them, happy to keep you involved as well.
0: Big shout out and a big thanks to Shaquille Prossler. What an incredible product this week. This episode is brought to you by Service Provider Pro, an agency dashboard and client portal software for productized services. Can you believe it? You know we're huge on productized services around here. This product is designed for those of you who run them at scale. So if you want to scale up your agency, you need a system for handling clients, payments, and projects. Service Provider Pro gives you that system together with a white-labeled client portal that makes your agency look professional, saves your clients time, and serves as the central source of truth for your team. Service Provider Pro is trusted by many TMBA listeners, including seven-figure agencies. This is a solution made specifically for selling and delivering your services at scale. So check them out. Check it out over at spp.co to learn more how it works. That's spp.co. Now, another thing that has cropped up on the show this year Due to the escalating worldwide inflation and decreasing bank interest rates is, what is the best way to invest your money? Now, crypto has got a lot of attention, especially from me and regular listeners who know there's going to be a lot more of that coming down the pike. But Simon Stock dropped by the show to talk about how he's getting very healthy returns from the good old-fashioned stock market. How much money does one need to be a full-time investor?
4: I would say around a million. If you're doing real estate, that gets you about 70000 a year. Stocks, it gets you about the same, but then you're going to get paid out probably half that, so thirty-five to 40000 a year. But you're going to get growth that way, so it really just depends on what you're looking for.
0: What year was it that you got a taste for this dividend investing?
4: I think it was 2014, 2015. The funny thing to me is when I started, I was just buying everything. Like I was buying funds. I was buying low yields and high yield. At first, you just look at those high yields, right? And you're just like, ooh, that, that's going to pay me more money.
0: A high yield would be something like a, a fancy...
4: Like an AT&T or a utility company usually have a high yield. Like I'm talking like that 5 to 7% yields. Or like a REIT, like a real estate investment trust. A lot of these are basically paying out a lot of their profits. Why? The return for them is not worth it. It's better for them to send more money to the shareholder because they have no use for it because the the return is so low. So a utility company, I mean, it takes a lot of cash to generate a return from a utility company. But as an investor from the outside, you look at this and you're like, wow, this is paying a 6% yield, a 7% yield. I'm going to get a lot more than say buying a Clorox, right? With a Clorox, you're looking at like a two to 3% dividend yield. I just had luckily bought a full spectrum of everything that seemed to look cheap, but I kept track of everything on a spreadsheet where I was like, okay, this is what I paid for it. This is what it's worth. And then I added in my dividends over time. And then I also factored in that compound annual growth rate to figure out how much money I was annually generating. And what I noticed was that the low yields in the five year mark, we're actually doubling and tripling. And these ATTs were still just generating the measly six, seven percent per year because there there's not much growth, right? Because they're paying out a lot of their cash. So they're not going to retain much to grow. And that's when I started being like, Well, how is Clorox doubling in ATT is only, you know, generated 40% total return of my money, and Clorox is up 150%. And that's when I started looking towards the businesses that I was actually investing in. It's almost the same, right? You're looking at your private business and and you get $1,000 this month and you say, where is the best return on my investment, right? But I'm looking at stocks on an individual level, on an individual business level, and I'm looking at how much return are they generating internally. And that's where you get this growth. That's where you get this double triple, quadruple your money outside of 10, 15 years. What they call it is a return on invested cash.
0: Let's talk about how you might determine such a thing.
4: Believe it or not, I find the best companies will actually tell you this in their annual reports. Like McDonald's will straight out say, we aim for 22% return on invested cash. Or if you read Nike, Nike says we try to get 30% I think Brown Foreman, which is a uh, like your Jack Daniels company, they also do consistently 22%. They tell you how they get that. So how they get that is basically all the invested cash that they have divided by their net income. So they look at how much cash they put in and then how much profit came out. Just like we would do in our private business, right? To say this return was bad, this return was good, right? And then how they grow is basically they retain some of their capital, and then they reinvest it, and that's how you get this earnings per share growth. But what I realized was like a Clorox was growing, say eight, nine, 10% per year, and AT&T is growing two, 3% per year. Well, AT&T looks great that first couple of years, but then you start adding time, 8% per year for 10 years, 20 years, you're starting to crush an AT&T.
0: we appreciate Simon coming by the show. I saw him down in DC, Mexico, and I know from that appearance, like so many people got inspired to get more into dividend investing. And there's a whole crew of listeners that are incredibly passionate about this. And Simon described it in a way that really made sense to me for the first time. It clicked, and I think that was very, very powerful message for me. So now let's get back to it. Unless you live in serious isolation, cryptocurrency and how it may impact the future has really Taken up a lot of space on the web this year. It's the hot topic. So whether you're invested or not, I think it's sparking interesting debates about freedom, autonomy, and also challenging the banking system and investments we've previously been stuck with and sort of thought were it. So in that vein, it's always amazing to have self styled crypto maximalist gerbs drop by the show to talk about decentralized finance or DeFi and how he's making up to 20% returns on his crypto investments. And just so the following makes sense for the show, we've invented a universal character called DeFi Devin for Gerbs to give some insights to. We're catching Devin here on his path down the DeFi rabbit hole. He wants those 20% returns. What are some of the next steps he's going to take?
5: The very first thing he's going to do is he's going to take custody of his, let's call it Ethereum now. Let's say he swapped his Bitcoin for Ethereum because he decided he wanted to go down DeFi, right? Or maybe a portion of his Bitcoin, which is probably more likely. He'll take custody, which means he's going to take his Ethereum from Coinbase or BlockFi and put it into a wallet where he holds the private keys. Very likely it's a hardware wallet, something like a Ledger or a Trezor. And then he'll connect his Ledger to a wallet. Something like MetaMask is the most popular kind of DeFi interface. And MetaMask is this wallet that you can connect your hardware wallet to so that you can now interact with all of the DeFi apps that exist out there.
0: You know, it's interesting, like, say you have, you know, $100,000 worth of Ethereum quote on your hardware wallet. You don't actually have that Ethereum on the hardware wallet. You simply have what?
5: You have a private key. You have a badass password. And your Ethereum exists on the ledger on the Ethereum network. But your your hardware wallet, it holds the password that allows you to point at that ledger in the cloud and say, hey, this row on this, in the ledger, that's mine. And I can prove it.
0: And ideally, you don't want to outsource that to either custodians or to software like Metamask, which has that capability.
5: Correct. Yeah. Ideally... It's on a well-protected seed phrase that was generated in a hardware wallet that you have good backups of that seed phrase written down maybe in a couple of locations.
0: And this is really scary stuff for people. And this might be the moment where the Devins of the world say, nah, I'm not going to go down that route. Yeah. Just talk to Devin at that moment. What's your feelings and thoughts about that?
5: Here's my pitch to Devin. Devin, you've worked hard for this money. (laughs) Do you know JP Morgan? Is he your buddy? Do you know him? You're going to let him hold on to your money for you, invest your money, do whatever he wants with it without even asking for permission when he makes those changes? Or are you going to take your hard-earned money into your own hands and go invest in the things that JP Morgan is looking to invest in? And are you going to take control of that hard-earned value you've created in the world? That's the power of all of crypto.
0: Thanks so much to Gerbs. You can check out what he's been up to. He has an amazing podcast. And go down the crypto rabbit hole over at bitlift.com. Now, one of the themes for me in 2021 was getting back to reading quite a bit, and especially been using that audible.com like crazy. I always buy more books than the, the basic membership. One of the things that really jumped out during at least the first year of the pandemic is that travel, hospitality went under people seemed to be losing their jobs in mass and you'd imagine there'd be this worldwide recession yet there wasn't so i started reading in this direction what happened instead was you know increasing inflation a subject that jeff booth tackled in his book the price of tomorrow i want to start the discussion of the book by just reading a tweet you wrote you said We are told we need inflation. This is not true. It only seems true because the rules of the game were designed that way. What game and what rules? Lay it out for us.
6: I'm a technology entrepreneur, and and what I do in a whole bunch of different companies is see opportunities with technology to provide way better value to society. And with technology, what you're able to do is create crazy abundance. One of my companies started 18 months ago. It was zero revenue 18 months ago. It's $10 million a month right now. So once you understand how to construct technology companies and where the opportunities are and how to build gamification into it, and hope, there's crazy opportunities. And those opportunities should be deflationary. In other words, I don't create a company. I don't work with any company that doesn't, provide abundance to humanity, right? That doesn't make things better. And you make things better by using technology.
0: You said a few things that might be worth digging a little deeper, which is you said abundance and make things better. And I think there's a lot of people that would just say, whoa, wait a second. That's, I don't necessarily agree with that just yet. What do we mean by abundance and better?
6: Let's go to the thesis first, and then we'll go back to, back to that, because I think it's really critical. Okay. It'll give an example of your question. Kodak for years had a business where they sold us film. It was a huge business and that film business, we took a limited amount of photos because the film was so expensive and we lost photos and those photos got damaged and everything else. Or they, over time they did disintegrated, but it was a really great business and Kodak invented the digital camera and Kodak isn't a business anymore. Why? Because. They were married to their old business. Today, we have an abundance of photos and different businesses have emerged to be able to capture that value differently. And for you, it's free. You don't buy a camera anymore. The camera on your iPhone is such an incredible camera compared to what happened before. This is one example of what I'm talking about because the technology is driving. As you get abundance, as you get more and more, it's hard to price those things. Pricing comes down. So that's the, th- the central thesis of the book. What was happening is I was looking and I said, if technology is moving this fast and it's exponentially moving, shouldn't prices be coming down everywhere? And I wanted to investigate why that wasn't happening. And what I found is first, on the other side of the ledger, an inflationary monetary system needs prices to constantly go up. Then I looked, and he said, okay, how much debt is there in in the world?
0: Why does the balance sheet require inflation to work?
6: So this entire system is based on credit. Inflation and deflation, two simple constructs. Inflation is when the value of your money goes down over time. So goods and services cost more in relation to your money. That's what inflation is. Yet... A whole bunch of people have been brainwashed to think, that's a good thing. Unilaterally, we need inflation. It's not a good or bad thing. It's good for some things. Inflation is good if you have assets. If you don't, you get crushed. So different winners, different losers, not good or bad. So inflation creates that system. So if you don't have assets, what inflation is saying to you is, your wages are going down over and over and over again. That's what it is. Deflation is the opposite of that. Deflation is money is getting it's worth more and goods and services are going down in relation to my money. So if any normal person would think deflation is a pretty good thing. Yet we live in a society, a financial and monetary system that collapses unless it has more inflation that's what's happening today and that's what's so hard to see you have two systems colliding against each other you have an inflationary monetary system that we've always grown up with we don't even question anymore colliding against technology that's trying to make things cheaper faster
0: and so the idea you know just to clarify is because there's so much credit involved in our system that's why we need to continue the upward inflationary trend in order to pay back the loans
6: Exactly. If you move into deflation, then the credit explodes in real terms. You can never pay it back. The only way you can pay it back is if you inflate it away and make the dollars that you're going to pay it back with worth way less. It's endemic in the system that if you stopped printing money right now, asset prices would collapse by 90%. All the banks would fail, governments would fail. So you can expect more printing what what's the problem of more printing it removes the free market entirely it gives all control to government technology creates this abundance that is deflationary and you know, that efficiency and abundance is deflationary up against a system that won't allow that to happen anytime there's a shift this great in technology that's happening the response from the existing system is pretty pretty normal the problem is today we're measuring all our own businesses kind of down below this. And the great game is happening on the international monetary system.
0: One of the fascinating things you mentioned, like sort of the social contract you felt to write the book, in part because I was actually shocked when you drew a lot of parallels to social unrest directly to this issue. And it's something we've all been kind of vaguely feeling and seeing more of. And can you draw, help us to see that? connection that you drew in the book.
6: So does anybody that's listening to this show right now believe that commercial real estate should be higher than it was pre-COVID? Nobody's in the commercial real estate. Buildings downtown Vancouver are empty, 7%. So should those assets be higher than they were before COVID right now? Logically, you'd say, no, they should have had a price correction. Why are they higher? Because if they had a price correction at the level that would need price correction should have happened, you would have had a deflationary spiral and banks would have failed. So you push those asset prices up higher. And then a whole bunch of people who can't afford those businesses or anything else get punished by the same, pushing up those asset prices and get mad. And they can't put their finger on it either. There's a whole bunch of winners out of there that don't know why they're winners. It's not bad people. I'm friends with lots of them. (laughs) And then there's a whole bunch of losers out of that equation that are seeing prices going up higher and higher. And I use commercial real estate as an example. The same thing is true in residential real estate. Same thing is true in food and everything else. There's a whole bunch of people that are losers out of that equation. They're getting evicted. They're hitting the street. Something doesn't feel fair to them either. And they're seeing this massive concentration of wealth. It is only being manipulated They don't know that it's being taken from their pockets, but it is, (laughs) and they're blaming the asset owners because of it. And so you get this divide in society.
0: Thanks so much to Jeff Booth, the author of The Price of Tomorrow. Absolutely love that book. A lot more book topics coming in 2022. As many of you know, and maybe even attended, we had our first in-person event in two years recently, DC-Mexico which brought over 200 entrepreneurs together in Mexico City. In fact, we were throttled by the hotel because we had to keep spacing regulations. And we're going to do it all over again, reigniting our pilgrimage to Bangkok in October 2022. Can you hear me knocking on wood right now? Our entire event schedule is, of course, COVID tentative in 2022, but we're very optimistic. And I know y'all are very adventurous as well. (laughs) And so in that spirit, Ian, myself, and the entire DC team are planning a host of events in 2022. Some of them grouped around activities like skiing in Colorado in March, and it's just amazing to be traveling again. But back at the beginning of the year, while airports were closed and many of us found ourselves grounded, people used that extra time that they would be spending on traveling to focus on personal or special projects. So James Clark, the author and voice of the Nomadic Notes blog, used an extended lockdown in Ho Chi Minh City to do an amazing amount of research which formed the basis of a great blog post called The History of Digital Nomadism, in which he broke down the waypoints of this sort of short history of the movement we now call Digital Nomadism.
7: I think 2007 is the next pivotal point. And you start at 2007 with the first iPhone being released, which was sort of like a major milestone in technology. Computing in the pockets, the sort of stuff that Arthur C. Clarke would have dreamed about. And then, you know, a few months later, you've got the 4-Hour work week by Tim Ferriss, which sort of gave people the permission and idea to, like, work from anywhere. And you could start using the cost of living to start living somewhere else or outsourcing stuff. All these things that have uh, related to being a digital nomad was sort of put down into one book, and I think that was a huge turning point for our movement at least anyway.
0: Tim was the right person to do it, and it was the right book to his personality, his you know, willingness to maybe be a little annoying or look past the rules or something was kind of, I think, important because there is this undercurrent that like this isn't right. This isn't the right thing to do. There is this like iconoclastic nature to you still see that undercurrent today and critiques of digital nomadism like it's gentrification it's this it's that or whatever like i do think as a culture we sort of needed the permission and the the blueprint to say you know what what's really clever making money in a first world country and spending it in a developing country like that's clever you like that's not weird that's just smart that's just good business is what tim Ferriss would say and i feel like that was an empowering message for a whole generation of tech workers
7: i think yeah that's the important point there was there was a lot of ideas that were already available but he just lashed them all together into one easy to read package which hadn't been done before i also noticed while going through all of these blogs that he lit a spark for the uh, lifestyle design movement. That was his thing. He wasn't really a digital nomad. He doesn't really talk about that, but he talks about lifestyle design. So there's a lot of bloggers that came after him who were like life hacking, if you will, or like trying to work out how to get more out of life with less. I'd like
0: to insert you know, what I've always thought to be a critical convergence in the history of digital nom- nomadism Skype launched in two thousand and four, but I think like Skype in and out launched in like two thousand six or seven around the time the four hour work week came out, and I think that like those two things and related technologies were like this very powerful bind of the difference James between making a living on the internet like you were doing through affiliate marketing or through web mastering or these various sort of knowledge work internet related things. Versus being a freelancer that maintains a relationship via telephone to their employer or to their clients is dramatic. And so I feel that one of the biggest understated sparks of the digital nomad movement was the ability to make affordable voice calls globally. And the Skype really enabled a lot of that.
7: Absolutely. The uh, revolutionary how, because that was like the biggest problem, like as a traveler. I'd buy these like phone cards and it costs like $2 a minute to call Australia or wherever. It's like something ridiculous. And then all of a sudden, I can now just plug in some headphones and I'm talking into my computer to my family in Australia or whatever. That was absolutely a big point.
0: Did you see the effect of the four-hour work week on the ground as you were
7: traveling around? Absolutely. It was a lonely life. I mean, I had friends, obviously, but as a worker, online worker, I just didn't know that there were other people doing it. So that's why I started Nomadic Notes in 2009 was like to put myself out there. I didn't really have a smoke signal to tell people where I was. So I just used that as a way to go, well, this is where I am. So come and find me. And I I ended up looking for other people as well. And from... 2010, I think that's when people are really identifying as digital nomads exclusively. Before that, there were sort of like travel bloggers or they were sort of doing some other thing, but now they're sort of adding this tag as well of being a digital nomad.
0: Thank you to James Clark, the voice behind Nomadic Notes. I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that, we've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform, With a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime, we've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done-for-you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero-risk hiring option if you don't really know about the long-term fit. Or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors, we can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com/remoterecruiting. And it goes without saying that this show is all about freedom and travel and building online businesses, but all these come with a different kind of stress. Often your family doesn't understand why you want to live cheaply in Asia for so many years. Maybe your aunts and uncles still don't think what you do is legit. Perhaps you're getting pressure on when you're just going to come home and settle down. Meanwhile, you're building a business. You have a team that relies on you for their livelihoods. And sometimes that can build up a perfect storm that can have a devastating effect, as happened to Benny Lewis, founder and personality behind the language learning site, fluentin
8: I had periods in my life where I was down and I was alone. You know, sometimes my travels were difficult and I would think to myself in those times, you know, maybe I'm depressed. And I definitely wasn't. Depression is where you have a complete lack of hope. The color has been drained from the universe. You look at things that you used to care about before and you can't possibly care about them anymore. and. You get reminded every day why you should be depressed, because here's all the reasons the world sucks. Here's all the reasons you suck. And this is a complete hopelessness that you can't get yourself out of. And somebody coming along and saying, you know, be a man and stand up and just smile yourself out of this. It it does not work. You need to treat it as a mental health issue you need to take it very seriously. You need to talk to people. It can feel very lonely. And like even when I was married with a partner, it was the loneliest period in my life because I I couldn't really verbalize how I was feeling. And that's the thing with depression. You can especially feel like you are the only person in the world who is dealing with this thing.
0: There's another element to it too, because like you're talking on the one hand about You know, you're a public figure. I think part of me is tempted to think entrepreneurs are just so damn special and that this is more likely to happen to entrepreneurs simply because they've put themselves into high stress situations where they are facing, you know, very existential threats regularly. And a lot of people depend on them to be the buck stops person for those existential threats. And because of all that, it can be tempting to hide the fact. When you're starting to get negative returns. Because one of the big themes of this story for me, Benny, we pulled it out immediately was like, how cool was it that your team had your back during this really difficult time?
8: Yeah, absolutely. And there is that disconnect, especially because, like, one of the hardest things for me to accept that I was going through clinical depression, I got diagnosed with it. I had to take medication, which was its own problem. I had to. Deal with that. I'm glad I'm not dealing with anymore. But it was very hard for me to accept that because I am an optimist. I am a positive person. And this conflicts with this definition I have of myself because I can't be someone who's dealing with clinical depression because it's not on brand. So, like, it's not, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't work on my social media posts, but it's also not on brand for me personally. That was a big struggle for me, but at the same time, I don't actually position myself as an expert. And I'm very lucky that part of the, the way I've, I've shared my journey with people over the years has been, I am not the guy who tells you how to learn languages. This is how I learned languages. And along the way, I messed up, I made mistakes, and here's how I worked through these mistakes.
0: But in your personal life, you are the expert implicitly saying, I'm going to pay you next week. So there's that too.
8: Right. That's kind of where the, I guess the conflict does end up coming in. Part of the thing is people are all vulnerable. Like you were saying before, you have this idea that, you know, entrepreneurs especially have to, to work hard. I don't necessarily think that we're special as entrepreneurs. I think a lot of people... Go through a lot of these struggles, like you know, having to work two jobs to pay for their family or whatever. It's very common these struggles that we go through. And I found that whenever I have discussions with entrepreneurs, and then turn around and have the the same discussion with somebody with a blue collar job, there's a lot you can relate to with that. But in terms of like, I had to provide for my team. That was a very difficult thing because there is a certain authority there that if the team imagines I am sailing through life, then that's easier. Whereas if the CEO is not doing well, then you know maybe my future in this company is not so secure. And that was a very difficult thing for me to juggle because I, I like to reassure those working at the company. And I'm glad I found ways that I would balance out the fact that yes, I'm going through a rough period and I'm not able to give to the company so much. So to solve that problem, I'm going to give you a lot more responsibilities. I know you've been looking to make more decisions and to be more autonomous. And that balanced out things a lot because when they had no autonomy and everything had to go through me, that was very stressful for them.
0: So it sounds like a win-win in retrospect that...
8: Oh, absolutely. You know, there's there's a lot a lot of terrible things that have happened to me in these last few years, but there are silver linings. Because I was forced to find a way to get out of this bottleneck quickly, I gave them responsibilities that maybe I would have hesitated for longer to give them. Yeah. There are advantages, but like on a personal level, if you share that you are struggling, like you see this with many people who have some kind of social media presence, that vulnerability is actually very beneficial in a lot of ways for connecting with people. If you've gone through similar struggles, maybe they can go through these struggles as well.
0: Thanks so much to Benny Lewis for sharing that story. All right, we're nearing the end of the show. If you're still hanging with us, here's a reminder of why we do this extraordinarily difficult thing called entrepreneurship. It's because we're outliers. We've given ourselves the permission to do things differently. And for the last clip of the show, here's Greenback Expact Tax Services founder, Kerry McKeegan talking about how the COVID epidemic accelerated their decision to change the way that their three sons are educated.
9: I mean, I'm absolutely not kind of anti-school. I think there's a lot of really, really fabulous schools out there. But I think that a lot of the times you kind of go into trying to think through education in a very narrow construct, right? So you're thinking about what subjects should someone learn? And for our kids, the main thing that we saw is a couple things. One, we've got three kids. They're pretty close together in age, but they could not possibly have more different personalities. So right off the bat, you're like, there's no one school that would be great for them. But then the other things that we were seeing is that when we traveled with them, it was a hugely different thing, right? So you'd see learning happen organically in a way that had nothing to do with school. And it was a better education than what you were seeing in school. So... For example, one trigger kind of moment that I think back on is when we were in Bali. We loved the school that the kids were going to in Bali. It was absolutely fabulous. But we had this moment, they were really strict about attendance, right? And that doesn't work that great for our family because we're always traveling. And so we had this one moment where we were trying to make a decision. We wanted to go on this trip to Borneo. So we wanted to do this you know, trip on the river in Borneo to see the orangutans. And I was like, we're gonna get a letter from the school, like the school's gonna kick our kids out if we take the kids on this trip because we've already done all these different trips that particular year. And I just kind of sat down and realized this is like this is not a dilemma that makes sense, right? So you know that it is a better education for the kids to go and learn about orangutans in the wild. You know that you know intuitively that that makes more sense. And school is sort of limiting your ability to do some of these things that are much more experiential. So there's been just little moments of time like that that I've kind of had, hmm, you know, like maybe school isn't the right thing for a family like ours. If we can open things up in such a way with travel or do all these different experiences that school would kind of, you know, the opportunity costs of putting kids in school, having their days be from kind of nine to four being in school is stopping you also from doing some of the other things.
0: What did it look like putting it into action then for you guys?
9: So this was early 2020, right?
0: Were you pre-pandemic mindset at this point?
9: Pre-pandemic mindset, had no idea what was going to happen, right? And we had, (laughs) but we had all these plans and our plan was literally just to pull them out of school, right? And do what we wanted, but keep them enrolled in a school. Got back to Costa Rica. So this was, you know, we're here in New York for Christmas. Got back to Costa Rica. And a couple of weeks later, we're sitting at the dinner table, and we always do this thing where we sort of go around and say to the kids, like, you know, what was the best part of your day and the worst part of your day? Something you learn. You just kind of chat about your day, right? We ask Jake, our our now nine-year-old, what he learned. He has all these things. He's all animated. He's talking about this stuff. And then we do the same thing with our seven-year-old. He's all animated. He's talking about all these things. And we turn to our now 12-year-old and say, what did you learn? And he was like, he literally, and he's this really vibrant, happy, easygoing kid. And he was like, I'm not learning anything I want to learn. Like, and he literally just was like, I'm so unbelievably frustrated. And we're like, "Hmm, that is not at all what we want to be doing here, right? We actually pulled him out of school before the pandemic hit. So we pulled him out of school in about February and had him doing, it was this really cool group of parents that kind of came together and we said, you know, here's a couple of kids. They all kind of, you know, we live in this incredible environment in Costa Rica. Let's use it. Let's take advantage of all the kind of local talent that is here and really do it. They started doing these project-based learning groups with those particular kids. So you had anywhere between four and six kids from like 10 to, you know, 15 years of age we said sort of let's try this project-based learning idea, which is essentially give the kids a set of problems and have them help solve them.
0: It feels like, yeah, the why has been missing from, that was missing from my education. I was always asking myself, why am I learning this? And it was very hard to understand. I guess my basic idea of like moving to a more homeschooling environment would be well, because mom and dad said so. (laughs) And like, that would be a concern of mine, you know, like, are these kids going to listen to, it sounds like you're not the one defining all the things.
9: No, no, no. So, you know, and this was probably my biggest fear about homeschooling. Like, I, I would not be a good homeschool teacher, right? Like, I'm the parent, and those are completely different things. And I respect, you know, families that figure out how they can both be parent and teacher, but that's not our model at all, right? So, you know, our job as parents is to, create the right opportunities. If a kid starts to express an interest in something specific, like kind of helping them follow that thread as opposed to, oh, we'll do that at another time because you're right now, you know, you have to go to school or you're enrolled in this particular activity at the moment.
0: So you're outsourcing this to professional teachers who are not in the system, essentially, or people who have skill set for this.
9: Yes. So we've got a combination of things and each kid. Each kid actually has a completely different Setup, but it all basically the construct for each is that it is either like a couple of kids with a tutor doing kind of a basic curriculum, which is the we use the Oak Meadow curriculum, and they do that to be able to have some sort of an overall grounding, kind of the base. And it also helps because it's accredited, right? So if you want to then show to, you know, universities or the world at large, like I've done school this year, you've got this accredited curriculum. And then in the afternoons, do these project-based learning groups or a series of other things, right? So like my, you know, seven-year-old has... teacher that used to work at the school down there and she takes the kids on on these art adventures it's him and a buddy and they literally go into nature into trees kind of find all this stuff and they they learn art but like in this very tactile not sitting with the easel type way like they're kind of out in in nature so that's another example of the kind of things but no essentially we're not doing any of the teaching Our job is to really help with the love of learning and to make sure that we're lining them up with the right teachers. So one of the things, like commitments we made to the kids when we started all this, we said, if there's something that you want to learn and you want to go deeper on, we will make it happen. So we will find you somebody who can teach you. So it's kind of more that you find the student, the teacher appears, as opposed to we're lining this specific thing up for you and you have to be interested in that, even if that's not naturally where you're at.
0: Big shout out to Kerry McKeegan and all the other amazing guests we had on the pod this year in 2021. If you've got ideas for us, questions, topics you'd like us to cover, or guests you'd like us to interview, our email addresses are our names at this domain, Tropical MBA, or producer Jane, that's jane at tropicalmba.com. Well, boss man, another year has passed on the pod.
1: What are we going to do next year, Dan? That's my question. Are we going to keep it up? Are we going to keep going?
0: Just another Wednesday, man. Just keep cracking it out. (laughs) Just another Wednesday.
1: That's right. That's the way I feel about it too.
0: For sure. One thing. We don't know what's going to happen next year. You're going to have to tune in to find out, but we're going to be here. That's the one thing you can count on next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Do join us. everything's interesting until you hit the red button here we go so much pressure all right so without further ado adieu (laughs) sorry i always think of this one david letterman he always said without further adieu i just loved he would like lean into it anyway
1: I don't think it's a bad thing to lead with tropical, but I do think that it's a little bit misleading based on what we're talking
0: about. How did about you pronounce it, by the way? Because how did you say topical? tropical? Tropical. <laughs> <laughs> DCBKKK. <laughs> all right. All right. I got this. That's a different sort of conference. You're
1: figuring out a way to be authentic.
0: And Harrison, just grab that authenticity thing and just put it in the New Year's Eve episode. There we go. I like it. Authentic. Bro- <laughs> it's like a perfect word. Like it's where you would go. I yeah. like it. Authentic. Yeah. <laughs> well, because, auth- bo- because both of these auth, because both of these off, because both of these off, because both of these authors were on the show this year. Hold up a second. Hold up a second. Did, did something bad just happen in your life? You, hold you on do? a
1: second. Trish, I'm recording and she just she just let the cat in here. You're not allowed to do that, Trish. You this got is to against get the, the law of, of the here. podcast. <laughs> I'm on the record right now. She opened the door and put the cat in the room. I'm like, what universe am I living in right now?
0: <laughs> okay. she She's
1: pregnant. All right. All right. <laughs>
0: How much longer does Mox have, by the way? He's good, man. Unfortunately. Right. Or fortunately.
1: Feeding him a, a vegan diet
3: or what? What's yeah.
0: <laughs> now
1: he's the only meat eater in the house. <laughs> He'd die. <laughs> Can't eat vegetables. He's a cat. <laughs> the person living in Libsen the person living in uh Libsyn, Jesus. The person the person living in Europe has the opportunity. Uh <laughs> <you> like that. <laughs>
0: Wearing a seatbelt was like sort of like a macho thing not to do it. Do you remember this? Not really. I think this was. Are we from different, different parts, parts of the country? country?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was always, always driving way too fast. All
0: right. Today. You know what? I'm gonna move on before I expose myself and my redneck roots.
1: <laughs> Cut that out. Exactly. So it's like you need multiple passport. Like the guy rolls up with a fanny pack. <laughs> not exactly like that, but. Uh, <laughs>
0: What oh, are you doing, taking a smoke break over there? No, I'm trying
4: to think about... <laughs> I, I
1: can't even remember why we... Uh, we started
0: talking about this because of you. Jesus, well, it remind me. And then I'll you were talking about looking at Instagram or whatever these things uh, are.
1: Well, you got to give me an alley-oop into that social media shit.
0: Ian, you were the one who who wrote this down. <laughs> okay, so sweatpants, are, are we allowed to wear these in public yet? <laughs>
1: in New York, yes, absolutely, you're allowed to. <laughs> Arison, 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 Arison That's how you (laughs) see it in the transcript Um, It'd be great if we can get some like Punching effects going on here
0: Or Mike Tyson stuff Um, Mike Tyson's punch out Something Or we might use the Everybody was kung fu fighting That might work Okay This were fast as lightning Okay Oh boy Broccolini.
1: Broccolini? Is that some kind of hybrid? <laughs>
0: Seriously? I love broccolini. You don't love I broccolini? don't even know what broccolini is. It's delicious. I think it's like a my. I I don't know. It's a little broccoli. Oh, okay. It's delicious. You should have Just some. Just checking. <laughs> it's a funky broccoli. Uh, I guess growing up, I was a big broccoli kid. Interesting. All okay. right. Noted. What are you into?
1: Uh, I don't know. I, I, I didn't prepare for that. You know, I think the
0: first thing that... Organic uh, SEO. The,
1: the first thing that came to mind is like any vegetable that I can dip in hummus. That, that's So I guess hummus is my favorite vegetable.
0: Baby yeah. carrot. <laughs> I think baby carrots are just real carrots that are made into small Oh, ones. man. So, How old are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some, things, some things I'm slow, to, slow okay. to realize.
1: They're just tertiary titties or... Jeez. <laughs> they're just tertiary cities or, or second and third tier cities
0: i'll ask you uh, ask me a question you gonna ask me a question or should i ask you a question you ask me a
1: question and then i'll ask you a
0: question. any question any question
1: <laughs> all right yeah i'll just start to color. i don't need i don't need a question from you sorry Harrison.
0: give a fake goodbye
6: jeff talk to you guys soon
1: A lot of faking going on this show. I just want to mention this, Dan. If it doesn't go well this year financially, mm-hmm. uh, word on the street is bodybuilders buy breast milk at <laughs> oh, around that, awesome. 150 to $2 an hour. Are you so, serious? Yeah, I got a plan. What? That's yeah. for real? That's for real. There's sites dedicated to it. I can't prove its effectiveness but what i can tell you is the mother of my child eats very clean i'm horrified Uh, i'm I'm vegan i'm leaving i'm i'm out i'm out out of this phone call this is
3: is oh god see you next week